Hey there, happy Monday, everyone. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. It's April 11th, Easter week, as they say. Got Easter on the horizon. And, uh, you know, so from the Common Good people, happy almost Easter to you. In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing here on uh, on Easter. Um, But for now, just a greeting from Minneapolis. And hello there, Dan Dietrich in South Bend, Indiana. Greetings from South Bend. Hey, hey, Dan, uh, you were in Puerto Rico. Any any news to share about uh, life in yeah. Puerto Rico? How are oh, things? Oh, well, it was great. We were, uh, we were down there for a week for spring break and uh, stayed in San Juan, got to explore old San Juan, which mm. is uh, mm. pretty cool. There's you know, 500 years of colonizer history <laughs> to sort through. Um, but awesome. really fascinating. There's old forts and churches and and lots of food, stuff like that. Mm. Uh, we did run into a island-wide power outage, which was interesting. Wow. The, there's a fire at one of the main power plants, and so the whole island, uh, the grid was down for about a day. So wow. That was a little exciting. And just a reminder that you know, Puerto Rico is a part of the United States, but not quite part enough that we will fix the infrastructure there. So there's some some disparities there that we should really uh, be getting on. How does that feel? I haven't been to Puerto Rico. How, how does that feel when you're there? Does it feel more like you're in uh, a part of the U.S. or like you're in an other country? Uh, what, what's the what's the general vibe for you know just a, a, some yeah? Of the it felt sort of like there. going to Hawaii. Uh, oh. you know, similar in like climate and landscape yeah. and stuff like that. Uh, a lot easier to get to Puerto Rico than Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, but it felt felt sort of like that, where you know you're, it's American, um, but there's enough local indigenous uh, flavor still, still keeping up that uh, yeah. hasn't been erased, which is good. Did you see any... Uh presidents of the united states there uh throwing paper towels to people when they were in need was that was that still a thing are they still talking about the paper towel Trump gate? Just launching a paper towel at everyone as you get off the airplane so it's pretty great yeah just just you know here to help everyone federal yeah. government's here how about if we have a little game here throwing out some paper towels uh, well, a lot, of, a lot of other things to talk about in the news but you know honestly puerto rico should be should be one of those things that it, it all the territories still just sit in my mind is the most bizarre thing that we have going on as a yeah. country. Like, how is this still a thing? And we rarely talk about it unless it's, for me, for, talking about it with someone who's from Puerto Rico mm-hmm. or has a has a, a reason to have been there on the island and caring about it. We just never talk about any of the, any of the territories. I'm now hard-pressed right now to name all of them. I was going to try to rattle r- rattle them off, you know, the American right. Samoan. Um, but why, why we just have these like extra, I don't know, citizen kind of locations in the United States ecosystem is right. just so bizarre. And yeah, the, just the idea that someone from Puerto Rico can move here, vote in any election because they're U.S. citizens. But when they're in Puerto Rico, they have very little say over federal policies that affect them. So, it's, so they can just hop on an airplane, fly to South Bend, Indiana, rent an apartment, and just start voting as someone from South Bend. But if they move to a new apartment on the island of Puerto Rico, 
No, you still can't. You know, that's that location's not represented. That that's that land space, right? Is not represented in our system in the same way. Yeah. What in the world? How I mean, is it's similar it still to a thing? even DC? Like we talked to, with a rep, yeah, running for the congressional seat of Washington DC. They can have a representative that can voice concerns, but they don't have any voting power within Congress, and mm-hmm. so their voices really yeah. not not heard. Not in the same way, yeah. Yeah, they yeah. get to. I think they, in Puerto Rico they vote for the president, but it doesn't count. Is that is that also how how, I'm how that not works? Sure about all the. All I think it's out. something like that. They do vote, but uh, the, they're not part of the electoral college because they're not a state. So those electoral, but but I do know that they vote. Anyway, goofy goofy business. Well, we're going to talk about some other news. And welcome back, by the way. You look you look tanned, well rested, <laughs> solid hair. Day. Ready to go. Uh, way to go. Well done. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, talk about other things in the news. Of course, we're going to reflect on Ukraine. A number of things, uh, you know, going on there. Uh, some states are passing these laws that they're refer that are often being referred to as "don't say gay" bills, yeah. um, which are actually much more uh, harmful than that cutesy little. Um, Right. Title implies. You should be clear of that. Where we are with Title Forty Two. Um and then some you know, some recap on the the, the guys that wanted to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Uh, mm-hmm. and then of course a uh, if we have time, but we'll start out here with it. Hey, congratulations to um soon to be Supreme Court Justice Jackson. So um Really great. I mean, yeah. it's just uh, it's such a such an accomplishment. And I have never seen this before. Maybe maybe this is common, and I just wasn't paying any attention. Th- that an undetermined amount of time between the confirmation of Katanji Brown Jackson as a Supreme Court justice by the Senate and when she's sworn in to become a justice, because she has to replace you know Justice Breyer when he when he steps away, and he said, well. I'm going to, you know, after this season of the, of the Supreme Court, you know, uh, yeah. uh, when, this, when, when these cases are done, so in the fall, then he will retire, announced it, tele, you know, telegraphed it way ahead. And uh, so now she's in this in-between space of having been confirmed, so nothing holding her back, just awaiting her, her Supreme Court yeah. uh, swearing in before she takes on, takes on that job. Just remind. There's something funny, fun, or not funny. There's something quirky about that job. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. I wonder how they do it. Uh, obviously, the swearing-in ceremonies. Some of us have seen those, but there must be like a. I don't know. They get like a employment contract, or they sign their name yeah. to something. <laughs> you, you don't. You don't even get it yet. Like there's got to be a, a. You know, some formalized agreement that she's going to sign at some point. Uh, mm-hmm. To, I guess, by the time she's, you know, she's been, a, she's a federal court judge, so she's probably done this in her other judgeships as well as she's graduated up. But it's kind of an interesting little reflection on what our system, how our system works, and how someone becomes a Supreme Court Supreme right. Court justice. And what do you do in the meantime? Does she just take a little vacation, or do you? Yeah, keep she, working? yeah good point. What do you, can you keep working once you? I don't know. Good point. Is she still functioning as a? Does she still have her daily federal judge duties? And or is she going to take a little time? But boy, this would be a this would be a, you know maybe she's available good for time the podcast. For a should be about to start a lifetime long job. Maybe take some time off before you start. 
do you think it's hard? Is it hard to be a Supreme Court justice, though? Truthfully, like, is this <laughs> is this a job where you're like, oh man, I'm I, I'm about to jump into the difficult, you know, waters of being a, a judge to be a Supreme Court justice, or is it kind of like? This is awesome. I got the <laughs> greatest job now, and you know, uh, life life became more simple. I, I wonder. I wonder what it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, people clearly take it. Uh, you know, there's an honorific narrative to it. You become a Supreme Court justice, and that comes with all this sort of positional benefit. But, but I, I wonder how it is as an actual job compared to the other jobs that people would be doing before they become a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. I think most of them are. are our judges, uh, you know, federal court judges. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder we'll if she's thinking. Maybe we'll see if Judge probably Jackson our, has some time. Yeah, probably our best chance if she's if she's got a little bit a little bit of time. Hey, this um, this article. Let's just talk about this now, if, if you're good with that. Yeah. Um, I, th- there was this article about um, the the Supreme about the Senate confirmation. Had this interesting paragraph in it, and those that are watching on the live stream uh, can see it. Uh, just looking at the podcast, here's what it reads: um, Seeking to capitalize on Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's historic confirmation as a Supreme Court Associate Justice, a coalition of progressive organizations are investing one million dollars in a new ad campaign targeting Black voters. So I, th- I found that to be interesting. I think that was some of the point of the of the article. When people talk about these Supreme Court battles being political, they don't only mean what's happening in the confirmation process. They don't only mean what will the justice ultimately rule on certain cases. There's also a narrative that's being created. And the fact that there's a targeted media and advertising campaign outreach to black voters to remind them that Joe Biden's administration fulfilled its promise. That's interesting. It's one of the ways that these Supreme Court nominees are used in the political flow and in the political yeah. system. And look, I'm glad they're doing it. I'm glad he fulfilled this promise. I thought it was a good promise. All of that's fine. But something about it just is like this. It feels weird, right? To, to milk it in that way, like to capitalize on it, just to make, make some political capital out of it. I don't know. It yeah, does feel I, just a little bit slimy, huh? Yeah, it it does to me, and it you know one of the things that I was taught early on, and we all were, but I captured my captured my mind was this notion of the separation of powers that the people of the United States, that we the people, it's our government, and that we actualize our government through three federal equal branches. Mm-hmm. The legislative branch, Congress, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. And they're supposed to be equal. And they just never feel like they are, right? They, they <laughs> always, it always feels like that judicial branch somehow is something else and is more tainted. And it can't have the influence on the executive branch or the, or the legislative branch the way that the other two can have their effects on the judicial branch. And I, I don't know. So every time it sneaks in to the benefits of the judicial branch, especially with the Supreme Court, the benefits being paid to the legislative branch or the executive branch. This is, I just feel like ah, we're not doing something, you know, it, it, it misses the, the sort of desired outcome of all this. Yeah. It just feels like it's supposed to be 
something better. I, I guess it reminds me of you know the the Christian theology of the Trinity, which I think is a funny little theology that. that <laughs> Uh, people had to make up, uh, you know, in the third and fourth centuries to explain some things, but that, that God is sort of equal in, in three manifestations of father, son, and spirit. And yeah, everybody's like, yeah, but not, not really equal. You know, we all, we all know that, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, yeah, the Holy it's, it's Spirit's like, kind of the bottom of the, the heap there. Totally. Totally. Uh, you know, it just feels like there's an aspiration in that theology or in this, imagination of the American uh, government. So congratulations to uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, soon to be associate justice of the United States Supreme Court. Yeah. Well-deserved. She's going to serve this country well. I'm so glad that uh, there'll be a general, she's going to serve for a long, a long while, all things going the way they're intended. Can be an entire generation that grows up with her as the norm. Yeah. Right. That's really she's, beautiful. That's the way and, I felt about Sandra Day O'Connor. That she's now long retired, but you know, like when I was a kid, I don't know, maybe high school or something, she was she was the woman nominee by Reagan, and like that that marked my uh, sensibility of mm. thinking about the Supreme Court and the role of women, and like it was it's it's significant. And you know, now uh, you know our Supreme Court uh, on with some of the justices, you know, it looks quite. Representative, it's starting to get there. Even some of the judges, justices that I don't, you know, tend to agree with most of the public things that they write about. It might agree with a lot of their rulings because you don't really hear all that much about all the political ruling, right. all, all the rulings of the Supreme Court, just the ones that have a certain, you know, cultural or political narrative to them. Right. Yeah. Representation matters, and it's starting to look a little more like America looks, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And just her demeanor through the whole brutal confirmation process. Jeez Louise. Uh, and the stark difference between her and like Kavanaugh screaming about you know various things and liking beer and like just two very different people. <laughs> and I'm yeah, glad to have yeah. her on the court. Yeah, and look, I mean I'm I'm no Kavanaugh fan, but you know, I'm kinda glad that also different temperaments and personalities are there. I wish, you know, his temperament was more under control. He seems to be a off the rail sort of fellow in public more than someone in a professional capacity should. And I like, I like her sort of vibe too. You know, she's got that thing going on. She's that, that it's not just one way of viewing the world or approaching the world. And certainly not with the sort of bulldog attitude of a Kavanaugh or even a Gorsuch, you know, two of the newer uh, also members. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, all of these, you know, these four new justices all make a life together, Yeah. you know, as they try to figure out what the Supreme Court's role is going to be in our society. I think we're in for a, a period, though, where the Supreme Court will have a diminishing amount of credibility in our society. Mm. I think it's about to come out with a series of rulings that are going to cause people to say, the Supreme Court is not something that I I look to or think of now with you know high regard. Yeah. Well, speaking, speaking of, of uh, yeah. the political implications of this nomination and confirmation, uh, the Biden administration is also dealing with the political fallout of Title Forty Two, which they just lifted. A lot of even Democrats are saying, like, this is a bad idea. Don't do this. Look to these to these Democrats, um, many of whom I'm putting personal energy into getting reelected to these Democrats who continue to think that title 42 is a problem 
or that eliminating Title 42 is a problem. They're just wrong about this. And yeah. uh, there, there are enough examples in our history where good people are wrong about important things. There's plenty of examples where not good people are wrong about important things and where not good people do things that are intentionally not good and right. This one, they're just wrong about it. Title 42, using pandemic government response, which is what it is, that in a pandemic, the government can do things that otherwise wouldn't do under the edict of a title, federal, uh, a federal statute title, 42. They can do all kinds of things. And to block our border and to uh, reduce the number of people who can come in and to keep asylum seekers and others out of the country because we're worried about their COVID impact in this country... It was bad science. It was bad policy. It it's harmed people unbelievably. And you know we're doing all we can around our little shop to help people understand what's truly going on at the border. Yeah, it is a wildly misunderstood and misinterpreted sensibilities about what's going on at the border. It just it just has to it it has to go away. And people should apologize for it ever having been invoked. <laughs> We're going to look back on it as a time when, like, wow, remember that stuff we did? Like, there were some things we did as a nation around COVID that we're going to look back and say, we should do that again. Like, put that on the wash, rinse, repeat cycle and be sure that anytime a pandemic comes up, we're going to do that one again. And some are not that way. And holding out a restriction on who can enter the country through our southern border two years into this pandemic, it, it has no bearing on anything other than giving people a reason and excuse to continue to limit, to reduce the number of people who enter the United States through our Southern border. Yeah. It's, and the justification is paper thin in the first place that this was going to stop the spread of COVID. But now yeah. there's zero justification. The CDC has said, no, we don't need this. And it's funny too, that the Republicans who have been so hardcore against any COVID regulations are the ones saying, no, we still need this one, though. Great point. Great point. Yeah, all these, like, uh, how come all these Republicans are now supporting COVID restrictions? Why, did, <laughs> why, why, why are they so hardwired into COVID restrictions? Uh, it just, I mean, it, it. when you just think of the way it's actually been implemented, people are traveling across that border if they're U.S. citizens all the time. So the idea that somehow COVID is raging in uh, asylum camps, or which we've created, by the way, or just people seeking refuge in the United States or people seeking a visa in the United States, that somehow those folks in Mexico, uh, regardless of what country their, their home country is, that they're somehow more, more contagious, that they're more infected, they're just not. So... The idea that we would restrict, like there may have been a moment where in the height of it all and everything was on a shutdown, you say, okay, just everything gets slowed down. We have been out of that stage for 18 months. The fact that this thing has, has continued and has just created such, such trouble. And look, even the senator from, the Democratic senator from Arizona is talking this way. Yeah. And uh, Mark Kelly's just wrong about this. He's, he's right about uh, enough things uh, that I think he deserves support, but he's wrong about this one, and uh, we should help him get better about it. We should help him get right on it. Yeah, even if there are political ramifications, <laughs> this is the wrong thing to keep in place. It was wrong to start. It was wrong to continue. 
Biden sort of tried to get rid of it early on and then was sort of like, oh, whoops, we can't. Uh, the court said we can't drop this policy. Finally, they figured out how to get rid of Title 42. And the thing is, it was, it was not just wrong policy. It was illegal. We were denying people the right to seek asylum. Yes. All international treaties and policies say you have to allow people to seek asylum. And the way to do that that we've set up is you have to step foot on U.S. soil and then while your case is being processed, you have the right to be here until we say you don't. But we skipped all that. We, we preempted yes. all that. And the reason it's not prosecuted as a crime or it's, there's not lawsuits forcing the United States to stop doing something that's illegal is because under Title 42, a long-term existing statute that allows the federal government to do things unusual that would normally, normally the government can't do, but you can do as long as Title 42 is in place. That's why Title 42 exists to allow the government to do some things in certain circumstances that it couldn't do other times. In other words, things that would be illegal, it can now do yep. because it's been determined that there's a public benefit, a public health benefit. That's how it's been operating. Everyone who knows how the Trump administration first put Title 42 into place and then how the Biden administration has supported it knows that they were just hunt the Trump administration was just hunting for a reason right. to limit immigration. And this fit. It it what look, the Trump administration was not running around saying, What do we need to do to limit people's <laughs> movement for COVID, right? They were working yeah. against all of that all, all of that thing. They were saying we can't be slowing down the government. We have to open schools, we have to open mm -hmm. everything, get everything back going. So why would they do this about the border? Not because they're worried about COVID. Even the CDC was saying that's, that's not something we have, you have to be concerned about any longer. And the other problem is the Title 42 impacted more issues than just the border. So there were some things that they wanted to be able to do at the federal level, greater level of intradiction into, into things happening on our border that all fits under this statute, Title 42's um, in, in being invoked. And, oh, it just so happens that it also means that we don't have to deal with asylum seekers. <laughs> the Trump administration, by their own statement and by their actions, decimated the system that allowed migrants to come into this country, whether they were coming by visas or they were coming by, by refugee status or asylum seekers. They decimated it because mm -hmm. they don't want the federal government to be able to do it, to be able to process people at the same level. Yeah. That's why they did it. So that's where this fits. And frankly, the, that some Democrats fear political fallout from this makes it even a worse reason to not lift Title 42. For the love of it all, political friends and politicians and elected <laughs> officials, this is your time to lead. Yeah. This is not your time to say, well, I don't know how people are going to feel about it suggest to them new ways to feel about it. Right. Lead on this issue. Tell them there's a different way. If you have constituents that are thinking, I think Title 42 is keeping us safe, start a campaign to share with them that it's not. Don't sit back and say, well, people aren't going to understand it. People are going to think it's too soon. Get out there and lead, or at least work with groups like ours that are out there trying to help people see right. that this isn't, this isn't something you have to do. This is the place where politicians are always struggle. 
and they're not the best at either of these, which is listening to their constituents or leading their constituents. It's mm-hmm. the, First of all, you have to choose and you have to be good at them. For many reasons, Democrats don't want to be good on this issue. And it's confounding and it's yeah. a real problem. And they've chosen to give up, talk about the border and who comes in. They've given up that topic to Republicans because Republicans have chosen to make it one of their top organizing issues. It's a primary thing that they organize around Mm -hmm. is the border and safety and drug interdiction and COVID and all of this stuff that, by the way, they don't, like you made a great point, these same Republicans don't want to do anywhere else in our society, right? Yeah. They only want to, they only want to do it at the border. They... They don't, they don't want to stop pharmaceutical drug companies that get people addicted to fentanyl. They just want to stop the flow of fentanyl across our border. They don't want to intervene on, on drug and, and gun usage. They only want to stop it from coming across or going across our border. Yeah. They don't want to actually deal with uh, search and seizures in people's lives. They just want to do it on the border. So mm-hmm. th- there's this idea that what's going to happen on the border is going to be good for Republicans and not good for Democrats. And... This, this may be a generational shift, but Democrats need to become the champions of what our immigration policy is in this country instead of saying, well, that's kind of a Republican issue. And that's what they're doing. That's what yeah. this article is about. That's what all of these nervous Nelly Democrats that are worried that it's going to cost them uh, on election day. Well, get out there and, and make sure it doesn't cost you on election day. And this ah. idea that... Like if we just pick up the Republican talking points, they're going to somehow win over Republicans to their side. No, that's that's not going to work. Yes. <laughs> so pandering to the right isn't going to get you more votes, but doing the right thing might actually get some votes. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Just do the right thing. Do the it's right this thing. idea that we have kept at bay some crisis by having Title 42 is just false. The crisis is just one step over the border. Right. We've kept people in a much less safe environment where cartels are preying upon people. And uh, I see our friend Alma Ruth in the chat. Uh, she says, uh, hello and blessings from the Mexico border. McAllen, miss you guys already. And she's doing the work down there that is necessary because of things like Title yep. 42. Yeah, the, she's uh, firsthand uh, on the scene, sharing regularly. You should follow her on Instagram and, and other social media if you want to, to learn, learn about what she's saying, that Title 42 is making asylum seekers stay in Mexico, and that is causing them to develop relationships with a whole lot of people that you don't want asylum seekers having relationships with. When you put people into a situation where there's no one to care for them but small nonprofits and drug cartels, (laughs) yeah, you should factor that in. So when someone says, "Hey, we're not quite ready for this," well, we sure are ready when it's Afghan refugees. We sure are ready when it's Ukrainian refugees. People are literally opening their bedrooms, and we won't open the border to allow people from Central American countries, from Haiti, from Venezuela, even from Cuba, like it. It's not that the United States doesn't allow people to come in as refugees. We totally do. We spend a lot of time and energy on that. There's a selective process that we should have, 
but that biases towards some and away from others. Yep. And that's one of the things that this all starts to uh, start, starts to raise. I see Barbara is raising this uh, this uh, issue right now. She says, what about the wave of Ukrainians who need to come? Here in Ohio, you would think we were part of a southern border state, but how many waves of influx can American ha- America handle at once? B2 Omicron, which is the current most spreadable version of the of COVID, still growing in the Northeast. Home tests are now inhibiting inhibiting numbers. I'm trying to point out there's not only one path of problems. She says, "Well, uh, Barbara, great great question. Uh, I've thought about this 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 um, myself a lot. And I'll just say to your question of how many waves of influx can America handle at once? The answer is a lot, a lot." It's hard to grasp the size of our country and it's hard to grasp the numbers of people in our country. 320 to 350 million people live in the United States. Most of our country is empty. Most of our country is in need of workers and in need of of more participation. And the birth rate in the United States is on a decline or even sometimes at a negative rate, meaning more people are dying than are being born. So we have a lot of room for a lot of people to come into the United States. Mm -hmm. One of the talking points that seems to ring true for a lot of people is the country's full. It is not full. It's not close to full. And full is not a measure of a population. <laughs> there's, there is no, there, there, there's not an occupancy number like in a hotel uh, where you say, well, all of our rooms are booked. We're mm-hmm. full. That's not how it works in the country. In fact, we have so much need and room for expansion. More and more people in our country will help across the board. People are looking at unemployment issues right now. Know that our current unemployment problems and so many of our supply chain issues and so many of our service-related functions in our society are being damaged because our immigration numbers for the last two and a half years have been far too low. It's going to continue to be a problem and we have to get it solved. There is more than enough, and the federal government has absolutely more than enough resources if if they choose to apply them. Mm -hmm. So just my my own uh, awakening on all this is the recognition that the scarcity narrative, that somehow there's not enough, and if more people come in, they're going to take it, and you can apply that from jobs. You can apply that to, you know, number of... of, uh, beds that are available at a at a asylum camp the number of the amount of the budget of local governments that have to pay for you know new people living in our country all of those things are not going to be negatively impacted by more people coming into our country whether they come in as a refugee meaning that they were declared accessible to the United States before they got to the United States shore or an asylum seeker who is an individual that asks for admission to the United States because of special cases, but they have to be in U.S. soil, or they're seeking a visa. All of these things, all of these pathways in, we have room for so many more. Like to be pro-immigration is what I think the Democratic Party should be. And if they're not going to be it, some movement should be pro-immigration, should be not only saying, of course, we should let people in and stop doing horrible things on our border, full stop, we should do those things. 
But we should also be like, here's why immigration is good and we need more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, back in the 1890s, they used to run ads in like Ireland and Sweden saying, come to the United States. We need you. We knew there was going to be whole sectors of, of land that needed to be uh, populated and taken over. Now, dark history to all of that, that that was land that was already owned by indigenous peoples. But once the decision was made to acquire the land of the United States, they had to be filled. So we went out and recruited people to come. In fact, the United States still goes to some countries and recruits certain workers, often called knowledge workers, to come to the United States and can't get enough of those people. We need a positivist view of immigration in this country. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't exist. And every time our Democratic elected officials say stuff like, well, maybe the country's not ready for us to lift Title 42 because we don't want all these asylum seekers coming here. Look, just just ask your own family story. When yeah. did your people come here? I mean, it's it it works. That's the thing that gets me. It's like most families, unless they're indigenous and have been here for thousands of years, have an immigration story. Right. Or it's not that old. Unless they were forcibly enslaved and brought here against their will. That's another sad, dark history to our, yep. our country. But so many people have a celebrated immigration story where their great-great-great-great-grandparents came with pennies in their pockets and made a home for themselves here in, yep. in America. And I, I know I've made this pitch before, but when we were in Del Rio and we were watching people, asylum seekers, trying to come into this country in the little town of Del Rio, Texas, I was like, this will be the Ellis Island for a generation of people who came. Instead of telling the story about that the boat crested the you know the seas and saw the Statue of Liberty, saying "Give us your your tired, your broken, and those who yearn to breathe free," mm -hmm. they see militarized borders and the U.S. government basically saying "Don't come," and then a bunch of social do-gooders uh, making it possible for them to come. We're we're creating an entire Ellis Island story that should be being celebrated. These people are heroes to their families and yeah. heroes to the future generations. That's the story we should be telling so that when they're, you know, I don't know, in 150 years when some version of Ancestry.com is running some ad, uh, you know, in the chip embedded in our grandchildren's <laughs> brains, they should be able to say like, Back in the good old days, you know, when your grandparents came here and they had to cross a river, they had to swim the river to do it, not be welcomed off of a boat and granted a, you know, an additional last name if they thought their last name was too hard to pronounce. Now we just run them through a level of scrutiny, making sure that they are who they say they are. I mean, the difference in what we did in the 1890s and even the, through the 1930s to some people in the United States... Not to all. Boy, if you were Chinese and you tried to come to the United States in that period of time, nope, you yeah. are not coming into the United States. So we've had a broken relationship with this. But we do have a narrative that says this is a country that welcomed families, and a lot of our families were welcomed during those times. That's the period we should be in now. It worked to build our country then, and all the quotas and all the limits damaged the country in the 19th century, in the 20th century, and is damaging the country in the 21st century. And this is part of what just needs to be championed and talked about and raised up and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, it's a narrative problem. It's a lack of imagination problem. Like this, mm -hmm. this should be an opportunity for Democrats to lead 
and to cast vision and inspire people, but they're falling back to Republican talking points because it's a little safer. And, and not only, not only Republican, you're right about that, but also any immigrant cautious talking point. There's a lot of it. I mean, it kind of goes from anti-immigrant over to immigrant cautious. That's the majority of the voicing that you hear in the public space. Then a little bit of pro-immigration, but almost all pro-immigration only comes from immigrants themselves. In fact, all the work we've been doing about common good around this issue, because we think it's important for faith voters to you know, engage their faith and they won't hold to those anti-immigrant and immigrant cautious views. Every time we get into this work, people are like, well, how come you guys are talking about this? Like, you're not immigrants. <laughs> As if immigration is an issue only affecting the people who themselves are seeking immigration. It's an American yeah. question. It's not, a, it's not simply a uh, question affecting those who are most deeply affected. Because truthfully, we are all affected by it. And uh, we're, all, we're all being harmed by the lack of immigration that's going on. Yeah. So... We got. We have. We just have a lot of work to do on this. On, on this. Uh, on this issue overall, and uh, there needs to be a pro-immigration caucus created in Congress. But uh, I just uh, can assure you, we are a long, long way from that. Yeah. But if the We the People Ride documentary gets out in the world, I think it could change everything. So please go over to votecommongood.com right now and check out our uh, start. Of, you know, the, you can see the beginning of the documentary, some of the pre-development pieces. And uh, become part of the street team and help help make the uh, yeah you know I shouldn't call it a street team we should call it a screen team <laughs> become part of the screen team and get this uh, get this thing out there and you'll you'll see another part of the story yeah all right well speaking of reasons for immigration and seeking asylum the war in Ukraine is raging on and it feels like we're in the same place we were a month ago and in fact when I started pulling up images for today's show I had one from last month. And it says, this is March 7th, says Ukrainian president presses U.S. for greater support as fighting intensifies. Hmm. And then we pulled up this article from today where April 10th, U.S. will supply Ukraine with the weapons it needs against Russia. It's been over a month and we're still having this talk like, well, we're going to send you some stuff. They're begging us to send resources and we've allocated, you know, certain dollar amounts toward that. We've hinted at support. We've, mm-hmm. but still, they they have desperate need for the actual stuff to be in their hands. And we're finally saying, "Yep, we're going to send it. It's on its way." You know, I guess by maybe by the people who talk about this stuff a lot, they're like, "This has been fast. That in a month we could move a bunch of arms over there." Uh, but it does seem that. I mean, Zelensky's been very clear. They just need more and more and more and more. And he's right on the edge of some people's minds feeling a little pushy about it, you know? And other people are like, no, the guy's in the middle of a war. Like, he needs it. You know, as Why a, don't you just as, ask politely? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like from A Few Good Men. Do you see that movie? Yeah. Uh, ask me nicely, Danny. <laughs> um, as an anti-war uh, person, this, uh, this stuff all sits very weird with me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, because the sol- the solution to this is not going to be more weapons. Now, more weapons might be necessary because of where we are right now, but ultimately, this is going to all end in some kind of negotiation. And 
Representative and Trump voter Liz Cheney, uh, who now, you know, uh, is on the select committee for the January 6th investigation into the treasonous actions of uh, the president and others. But, you know, previous to that, she was a twice Trump supporter and voter. She was on uh, one of the shows yesterday and uh, Sunday morning talk shows. And she was when after someone from the Biden administration had said, you know, we're going to do everything we can to get Zelensky into a position where he can negotiate a peace with the greatest success. She's like, we should not be talking about negotiating anything. There shouldn't be any negotiating any peace. We should arm Ukraine until they win the war with Russia. And that's just barely a, a, you know, a recap of, of what she said. As if, what, Ukraine is going to defeat the Russian military? Like, how do you, what, they're going to, like, finally Russia's going to run out of weapons and they're going to have to say, well, we're all out of bullets here. And these people aren't out there with six shooters waiting till they're out of bullets. You're not going to defeat the Russian army. That's not how wars work. You don't defeat armies. Armies get to a point where their political leaders say, now it's time to stop because a set of conditions have become undesirable. That's what happens. This obsession in our country, because we're people who want to do something, is, well, what we have a lot of are people that make weapons, which is kind of nauseating as a reality that the United States is an enormous arms producer and arms distributor. Yep. It's who we, who we are as a country. The world's arms dealer, yeah. That we can give, you know, Ukraine all kinds of weapons. You can give them airplanes, we can give them, you know, all sorts of stuff because we're just loaded with that. Yes, and that won't ultimately bring about the end. The end is going to come when Vladimir Putin decides that the pain is too high and he pulls his army back. Now, that's already started in, in Kiev, and they've the city now, the, the capital seems free, and they're not going to be under the assault anymore, and it's now moving over to the east side of the country, which is probably what the negotiation is going to be anyway, is that Russia is going to annex another piece of Ukraine, the more Russian-supporting part, and that's going to be how this thing's going to get negotiated out. But ultimately, wars are always failures up until the point that they bring about some kind of a negotiation and human beings inability to live with one another. I mean, just look at all the wars that we know of in our sort of in our lifetime and how many of them are divides of people who are close to one another. Obviously that's true with Ukraine and Russia. I mean, literally neighbors that was true in world war one and world war two with all the neighbors. You think about the Vietnam war, who was the Vietnam war between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. Who was the Korean War between? North Korea and South Korea. Who was the United States Civil War between? The southern states and the northern states. Like the, There is conflict that's born out of proximity. Proximity doesn't only give you perspective and understanding. It often raises the conflict. The Iraq War, the first one, was about Kuwait when Iraq went in and wanted to take back parts of Kuwait. And what's going on in Afghanistan is tribes battling over who's going to have control in the same landmass, in the same country. So that's what's fundamentally going on. And these conflicts utilize weaponry. For sure they utilize weaponry. And it's now become part of the currency of negotiation. And will Ukraine have a better chance of negotiating in a position of power if they're not running out of weapons to inflict 
not only damage on Russia, but to keep Russia from from seeing successes in what it's trying to gain? Absolutely it will. No, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. But in the end, they will say, everyone will say, weapons are not enough. I mean, look, Ukraine has been out-weaponed the entire time, and Russia's not winning because Ukraine won't give up. That, that Ultimately, that's why, right? And that's why so many of these leaders are coming around Zelensky and being like, this guy's unbelievable. He has embodied the Ukrainian spirit to not give in and to not give up. He's just played it near on perfectly. And look, I have a whole lot of fear about putting a whole lot more weaponry into Ukraine. Every time the U.S. has done this and armed people for some war, think about arming Afghanistan for its battle against, against the Soviet Russia. Union. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah, next generation thing you later, know, those weapons are used against us. And, and blowing up and blowing kids' legs off because the mines are still sitting out in fields. So, yeah, yeah oh, yes, okay, Yes, we we should all pat ourselves on the back and give Zelensky all that he needs, and he's in a tough spot. And you know, someone sitting in the safety of my own you know little basement here, you know, outside of Minneapolis, doesn't have a lot to a lot to contribute to the on the ground pain that these people are experiencing, for sure. And feeling more support at the international level, that should work too. Um, and threat of consequence is what causes people to behave and not behave in certain ways. But ultimately, let's not convince ourselves that weapons are the solution, you know. And, and you know, this, 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 these are the hard points. This is the hard moments for the, you know, for the give peace a chance crowd that I'm in, you know. <laughs> is, uh, yeah. You know, yeah, it's oh, like, it's, I hate war. I hate what's happening. But I hate war crimes more than that. And it seems like Russia, as they take over towns and villages and cities, they're not caring about, civilian casualties in fact it's part of their strategy to terrorize the population to make them give up and so it seems like the only way to stop mass civilian casualties is to help the ukrainian forces stop the russians and i i hate that that's where we're at but it, in order to get to the negotiating table they have to force russia's hand to get there they have to make it painful enough for the you know russian military that they politically can't keep doing it. Yeah, and one of the ways to do that is to empower them with war weaponry. For sure. That's an option is the option that the international community has chosen so far. Well, one Caveat. of them, in addition to massive sanctions. Well, that's what I was going to say because the other is that the global community, not just some people, every country turns against Russia and doesn't allow it to do this. China, India, Pakistan, Saudi, all these people, everyone, everywhere, German with Germany with their oil. Yep. Look, there's still billions of dollars going in and propping up the the ruble and propping up the the Russian economy. There are other ways. Now, we can say the global community won't utilize those ways. And yes, it is better, as Dave points out, that we send only weapons and not U.S. soldiers. Yes, that's a better that's a better choice. But it's also not the only choice. The other choice is to make sanctions 
the punishment on Russia as a nation so severe that they stop. Right now, that's not the case. It's Now it has to be a combination of some sanctions, you know, and now we're sanctioning Putin's daughters and, you know, trying to find some pressure point to, to press on. There are other ways. I'm just saying, there becomes a narrative in our society that war, as broken as it is, and zero examples of it ever working, is the only solution that we have. And we just return to it and return to it. It's this, there's this old saying, uh, you know, this, this old proverb that as a dog returns to his vomit, so does a fool <laughs> repeat his folly. Because everybody's watched a dog go back and sniff the vomit. Everybody's watched a person or a country or a leader just do the same thing and return to it again and again. And we get this narrative that boy, oh boy, war, war is the way you're going you're, you're gonna to get there. The way we maintain most peace in the world is not by constant war. It's by other negotiations, right? That's, that's what you want to do is get to some kind of a world order that's not just might makes right and bombing people. And what Russia determined to do was to say, we're going to go in, we're just going to take over parts of, of Ukraine and try to replace their government. And a lot of people were like, no, 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 don't do that. Man, you could have started that smackdown on them, uh, but the international community won't do it. So then this becomes the only other option. Mm-hmm. That's the point I'm trying to, you know, awkwardly, ramblingly make here is there are other ways when we use war, let's not tell ourselves, well, that was a, that was a good choice. That was the only choice left available in light of the conditions. And let's look at square in the face and recognize that it's a huge mistake and it's literally costing people their lives. It's destroying cultures and society. It's traumatizing world populations. Yeah. And it re- and these are true of all the wars going on, wh- wherever they're happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they, they're just broken. And it, <clears throat> all the things we've talked about today all fit in that same sort of schema, right? This is, this is why people say, boy, you really just need a different worldview about all these things. Because <laughs> uh, they, all, they all sort of fit in there. Yeah. Hey, uh, and, and speaking of that, the Orthodox Church of Russia, not really doing its part on this one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this article pers- here says, the head of Russia's Orthodox Church calls on people to rally around authorities. You know, we well, talk I a jo- lot around here about Christian nationalism in America, and this seems to be just another shining example of it overseas. With a fantastic crown hat on for the the head of the Russian <laughs> Orthodox Church, it's great looking outfit, and yeah, I look, I, I would agree that the people of the Orthodox Church and of all faiths should rally around authorities and tell them to stop being warmongers. Rally around them and get them to stop doing what they're doing. Not rally around them to support them. Mm-hmm. So all for the rally. Uh, in fact, uh, reach out and let the, let the authorities hear your voices, uh, people everywhere, but especially for the Russian church. Now, clearly what they mean is to support this because supporting Mother Russia for the Russian church is a big deal. And it's really hard for me personally because I'm a big fan of orthodox spirituality, orthodox. Like if I was more committed to being religious, I'd totally be an orthodox Christian. Uh, I, I like their theology. I like their structure. I like their function like sort of how they get on with the world. And then they do stuff like this. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's right. It's, it's, <laughs> well, it should it's be also... noted that there are dissenters among the ranks. There's been some priests sent to jail, disappeared for preaching against the war early on. Good for them. 
So like in any religious movement, there are yeah. there are different factions and. That's of course, right. this one is not a monolith either. So, and we should, you know, remind ourselves that all the sectors of our society, including religion, get captured up in this stuff, and it's not easy or clean for anybody to uh, to be involved in these ways. Um, yeah. And and if you don't, and, and I'm not sure where the Orthodox Church is, or the Russian Orthodox Church in particular is on war theory. Uh, I don't know if they're generally opposed and specifically you know, for, uh, it in certain environments. I don't know what the, what the case is, but boy, it sure would be good if the religious communities of our world were consistently opposed to war. Mm-hmm. And then when it happens that they're a voice that has to be included and answered to in the rationale for, uh, for war, because it's, um, and look, and, and there's a lot of negative ways that a, that a country can impact another country other than just war, right? There's, so it's not like, oh, if we get rid of war and physical violence and the, the machinations of military, militarism, that that's going to solve all the interference problems. Many countries interfere in other countries in detrimental ways to the human flourishing of people in those countries. That's not just the war side. So yeah. It's it's not the only way, but boy, we should just put it in the category of it's just off limits. Like we all know there's things that you're not supposed to do in war, kill the innocent, bomb hospitals. We call those things war crimes because we've said some war we're going to determine to be acceptable and some acts even in war are unacceptable. I would like to just broaden that category of what's unacceptable almost mm-hmm. to the point where there's nothing in the category of acceptable. And then we can move on because people who say, well, no, you're just going to have war. It, they don't say, well, you're just going to have governments inflicting terrible, destructive pain on citizens like the United States dropping nuclear weapons on two towns, two cities in Japan at the end of world war two. We don't, say that that's going to be normative. We don't say, go ahead and bomb hospitals because we say, sure, yeah, yeah, okay, people make this argument. Yeah, you have to have war for sure. And we're going to build up for it and we're going to, you know, we're going to practice it and we're going to show it off. We're going to have military marches in our cities and all this stuff. Thank everyone for their service when they're, when they participate in it. But there's some things you just can't do. And it's actually a lot of things. And it's a lot of things they used to do. Yeah. In fact, some of the things that, that Putin's going to be convicted of war crimes on are dropping cluster bombs. And for a lot of years, cluster bombs, bombs put together and bl- one blows up and then another one blows up and they come in a cluster and they cause real damage to civilians and to infrastructure. Those have now been banned and outlawed. Chemical weapons have been banned and outlawed. And, and using certain kinds of practices, even bombing you know, uh, uh, power plants in places right. that you know is going to create poverty unacceptable. Like we have a lot of rules of war. Mm-hmm. So we can just keep expanding those until we just have no war, no more. Uh, and uh, that's, that doesn't have to be far-fetched unless you believe, no, it's just sheer might makes right chaos. Everything's on the board. Mm-hmm. So not to be overly you know didactic about it, but it's either you think some things are off limits and therefore all of it can be off limits or none of it's off limits. But this business, like some of it's off limits, but we have to have it. I think that's just, that's irrational. I don't think it matches. And I think we should, we should be done with it. Yeah. Well, that'd be nice. 
I just say boo to war. I just say down, <laughs> thumb, thumbs down to war. You know, like thumbs put it in down, the, yeah. put, put it in the junk down mailbox. <laughs> All right. Do you want to say something about uh, the, the 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 bills that are being put out to try to get teachers to stop talking uh, yeah. about things? Gosh, we have so much going on. I, we've, yeah, we've got don't say gay. We've got the kidnapping <laughs> attempt of Governor Whitmer. All right. Let's let's hold off on the Governor Whitmer one until the very end because somehow it, it feels slightly lighthearted if, if, if <laughs> that's, that's possible that a plot uh, a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan and then those four people being either acquitted or hung juried yeah. and not going to be convicted of it is the good news of the day right the but to the to the bad news Florida you know is famous now for passing this uh, this don't say gay bill. Uh, and a bunch of other states got in line and said, "Hold my beer. I think we can, <laughs> we can do this better. Good luck, or, or worse. So it's it. Whatever infection this is, it's spreading to other states. It's a growing list of things that Republican governors are telling their local school boards what they can and can't teach. Critical race theory, certain views of economy of economics. Now." sexuality and gender can't talk about this i thought republicans were the people who would say school is a local issue not a state issue certainly not a federal issue but local school boards are supposed to make these determinations of curriculum it's shocking to me that the that the governor in florida would tell all districts in the state what they're supposed to do just on that merit alone. But then the fact that it's you can't talk about positively about families and how families are constituted. Families are constituted in the United States under the same legal status no matter what, if you're married, illegally married. And you're saying you can't talk about something that's legal? People can change their gender. It's completely legal. And you're now saying you can't talk about it? discussing the history of our country's its involvement with race. You're now saying you can't talk about it. This like controlling what can be talked about for all the Republicans that have been saying for all of these years, how fascist they think, you know, the Biden administration is or the Obama administration was and how controlling. Now you're literally saying, here's what you can't talk about at school yeah, because you want your child to be educated and not indoctrinated. I mean, that phrase precisely what you're doing is indoctrinating. You're literally saying, don't tell people facts because you want them to maintain a set of beliefs. Mm-hmm. Now, look, every school district should decide when do topics get talked about at what age appropriate levels. Yeah. Sure, it's tough. But man, I'll tell you the number of parents I know who have children in first, second, and third grade where those kids are talking about whether they're gender assigned to them and the gender that's expected of them matches their own heart and mind. That's very common. It was common when I was a kid, just no one gave it any benefit. We just jammed it down in society and told people not to talk about it. And now kids are just allowed to share it with their parents. Many kids are with their parents or with other people important in their life. And now the school is saying, you can't talk about it as a teacher. I, I, I hope that, that teachers unions and, and teachers themselves in Florida really push, push hard on this because this is nothing but a brazen play to try to convince a bunch of parents that are worried that somehow their 
child is going to turn out to be not who they want them to be because of some information that they ran into. Yeah. Bad yeah, parenting it's, ideas. It's outrageous and <laughs> it's harming kids because just like it's become a little more comfortable for kids to have these conversations with their parents, hopefully, or a trusted person like a teacher. It hasn't always been like that. It's been off limits to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. so many people felt isolated and alone. And this has led to real problems yeah. like suicide and depression and homelessness. These are things that are literally affecting these children. And we've made some progress and states like Florida are saying, nope, let's go back to the good old days when we brushed that under the rug, pretend it didn't exist and hope for the best. Dan, you have time for a little Bible lesson this morning. It's Easter <laughs> week. Do you have time? Oh, I would so, love it. So one of the first conversion stories of someone following the Jesus path who wasn't mm. in and around Jerusalem. Uh-huh at the time of Jesus is recorded in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, why don't you grab your Bible and open up to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. And there you're going to see that a, a particular person is sent out. Philip is sent out to tell this story of Jesus to whomever. And he ends up uh, traveling down this road. And who does he run into but an Ethiopian in a chariot sitting on the side of the road, mm -hmm. reading the book of Isaiah of all things. But this Ethiopian eunuch is or this Ethiopian is not just an Ethiopian and not just somebody who's in service of a queen of another country. So a foreigner from Ethiopia, but is a eunuch. A eunuch is someone who had been, had their testicles removed uh, at childhood. And so now this person is neither male nor female. This person is now non-gender conforming is what we would, the words that we would now use. And it's that very person who's reading this book of Isaiah and reading about how there was this one who suffered and whose birthright was taken from him. This is a passage that, he's, that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading in the chariot when Philip comes by. Reading this passage about the prophet Isaiah from the, Jewish scriptures talking about birthright being taken from them and being an outcast. And the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip in like a pop-up Bible study sitting by the side of a, <laughs> of a pond, who is the eunuch or who is the prophet speaking of here? Because the eunuch is like, I understand this story, birthright taken from me, mm -hmm. an outcast, someone who feels that they've turned against them because as a non-gender conforming person who doesn't fit into any of the cultural society, whom is the prophet referring to? Himself, the prophet, or is the prophet referring to someone else? And you know what Philip says? Philip says, actually, you know who the prophet was talking about? He was talking about a future one who was to come, the Christ. And that's Jesus. So I want you to see that the prophet is saying that the one who is without a birthright, the one who has been excluded, the one who has been put out, the one who has been killed, that's the one that you should find identity with in Jesus. And the eunuch says, I, I, that's my story too. So the first conversion story in the book of Acts to anybody outside of Jerusalem is someone who is non-gender conforming, and find solidarity not, not solidarity, not only with the prophet Isaiah from the Jewish scripture, but is immediately connected that story to Jesus as the Christ, who is also the non-conforming one. So when these people say to us, well, the Bible says, yes. I'm like, 
let's go on that one because there's a story that <laughs> yeah. you should be talking about. And then the Ethiopian eunuch says, "How? What, what do I do? He says, well, let's baptize you right now. And so it's the baptism that Philip does of the Ethiopian eunuch. Mm -hmm. So when someone says, well, what does the Bible say about gender? Well, it says that non-conforming gender people, non-gender conforming people find great solidarity with the prophet Isaiah and with Jesus. That's what it says. Yeah. So go ahead, Governor uh, uh Governor DeSantis, thank you. Governor DeSantis, and go ahead, Louisiana governor, and go ahead, Alabama, and anybody else that wants to now say teachers can't talk about that story. Is that what you want to say? How about Christian schools? <laughs> when are you going to stop silencing people's faith because it's a religious freedom question? I mean, look, you want to use the Bible to start talking about non-gender conforming patterns? Let's talk about Deborah the judge. How about that? Why do you think there's someone named Deborah who's a judge of Israel? What do you think? Were there a lot of women judges? What do you think's going on there? Somebody who's non-gender conforming? Why don't we talk about Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat that he wears and how this... Joseph doesn't hang around out in the fields with his older brothers doing the manly things with their big, strong beards, as the scripture describes them, but instead is at home with his mom in the kitchen. And then when that Joseph goes out to meet his brothers, what do they do? They beat him, dig a hole, and throw it in him because they hate him. Why do they hate him? Oh, because he's home with his mother? Because he's wearing a queen's jacket? Yeah, you're getting yeah. the point. Or how about Easter time? We're now going to tell the story this week. I bet Palm Sunday week, somebody sat in their church service and they read this story about the, the Jesus saying to his disciples, hey, we're going we're gonna to have Passover. Someone needs to go uh, find, find the place in Jerusalem for us to celebrate the Passover. And they're like, well, we're not from Jerusalem. How are we going to find a place in Jerusalem? Like we're from Galilee. Where are we going to go? And he goes, okay, go into town, find the man carrying the water jar. And he'll show you the way to the place. Easy throwaway line. Don't think a lot about it. Go find the Culligan man with the water jar. <laughs> Turns out it's not a Culligan man, but it's a man collecting water. You know who collects water in the first century in Jerusalem? Women collect water. Why is it that this story says, go find the man carrying the water jars and he'll show you the place? Why, why is the non-gender performing person the one who shows the disciples where to have hmm. the Passover meal? So over and over and over, and then you hit the Apostle Paul. Let me just, I mean, I'm going to finish this sermon now with a little, you know, a little <laughs> book of Corinthians and some Romans. Then the Apostle Paul says, look, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, no male or female. We're done with that stuff. Mm -hmm. There's an imagination that says, let's not be bound by those old stories anymore. So if you want to identify as a Jew, Paul says, fine, identify as a Jew. If you want to identify as a, as a female, identify as a female. But don't put your burden on someone else. So you want to take on these stories and talk about the Bible in the South and these parents just aren't ready. There's some things we could talk about with all this. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, there's a lot that... I just really read the Bible really people like to leave out and omit yeah. and skip over. And, and, and I'll just say for those of us who still know the Bible and care about the Bible and think that it actually can have some positive influence, 
speak up, share something. Cause there's a whole lot of people who think the Bible should matter and really is important to them. And the only people they have to hear from about any of this stuff are people saying things to them that are not true. Mm-hmm. There, there is so much that you could create that we can create about this topic in particular that matches the gospel. In fact, you, it's very hard to make sense of the gospels where you don't see gender bending happening. Even the fact that the authorities on the resurrection of Jesus that people will talk about on this coming Sunday are women and the men don't believe them. And the authority in the church becomes women. Yeah in the book of, in the, in, in the gospels and then into the book of Acts. So you can do all you want with your own homophobia or fear of trans people. And I get it. There's a lot. The reason the Bible's so preachy about this is because the writers of the Bible experience the same things that we all do, that people feel a lot of bias against gay and transgender people. So preach the gospel to help them not feel that way. That's what the gospels are doing. And I know to some people, they're just like, this is bizarre. I've never heard anything even close to it. Fair enough. That's the good news of the Bible. I mean, the good (laughs) news is supposed to be you heard something that was good and it was newsy, right? As opposed to, I heard the same old thing again and kind of reinforced the stuff I was thinking before I started listening to to all this stuff. Yeah. Boy, that's two years of a pent-up preacher that doesn't have uh, (laughs) a pulpit anymore. Palm Sunday week. Uh, All right. Is that good? Great. Done enough? Done enough good for the day? <laughs> Go take a nap. Yeah. Man, you know, so, some days I feel like our podcast now, hour and 10 minutes, uh, pushing an hour and 11 minutes. I think it's too long, but man, I've been listening to some podcasts for like an hour, 45 minutes. At least we're Phew. not that. Not yet. We're working <laughs> at it though. I don't have the stamina quite yet, but don't, don't, don't think we can't get there. Uh, hey, uh, if, if that sort of thing gets you fired up about Easter uh, uh, and you want to know other things, we're doing a thing called the March for Mercy on Easter with Red Letter Christians, Death Penalty Action, another group called um, uh, No One Left Behind. And it's uh, going to be a walk in Nashville because we're going to walk from the penitentiary in Nashville where they're scheduled to execute Oscar Smith on Thursday of next week. So this Sunday, we're going to gather and we're going to walk from there to the state capitol and ask the governor to show mercy. And we think it's particularly poignant to do it on Easter when people are celebrating the resurrection, which is the response in Christian theology to an execution. Mm -hmm. In other words, to deny the power of an execution, we proclaim the resurrection. So how about if we stop executing people in the first place? That would seem to be uh, an even greater than version of the, of the resurrection. And uh, that would be uh, better for all of society. Lots of information on vocommongood.com. You can find it there uh, for all this. And if you want to put your own little walk together, maybe just you or you and a couple of people and just uh, find solidarity, we'll be doing it from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Central Time uh, on Easter Sunday. And it'll include a rally that wherever you're watching this, you'll be able to watch that rally happen uh, at the state capitol at 4 p.m. We're also going to put up some excerpts of the walk itself as we walk the nine-mile journey and going to be carrying large images painted by the men on death row at Riverbend Penitentiary were going to be. And the paintings they did were the stations of the cross. So men on death row facing execution, painted imagery of Jesus's stations of the cross. And those are the ones that we're carrying with us to try to get the governor to stop this. Um, That's another way this can all go. Yeah. So join us for all that stuff and we'll 
By the way, we'll be back uh, tomorrow uh, and talk a little politics. And then on Wednesday, a little bit of faith and all the rest. So anything else, Dan, we should talk about? No. See everybody tomorrow. All right. Bye now. <laughs>